Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Lance Cole, a professor of law and the director of the Center for Government Law and Public Policy Studies at Penn State Dickinson Law School in Carlisle. Professor Cole has extensive practice and public service experience in Washington, D.C., including having served on the staff of the 9-11 Commission, as well as on the staff of the United States Senate Special Committee on Whitewater. Professor Cole is also the co-author of a textbook on the law of congressional investigations and oversight, which is the topic of our conversation today. Last week, Representative Adam Schiff of California introduced legislation to establish a commission assigned with reviewing the Trump administration's response to the novel coronavirus, looking specifically at what the administration knew about the virus, when they knew it, and what actions they took with that knowledge in the days and weeks that followed. As you'll hear Professor Cole explain in this episode, commissions to investigate governmental conduct following traumatic events are common throughout American history. The Pearl Harbor attack, which was the worst military defeat in our nation's history and indeed the only successful attack on the homeland of the 20th century, resulted in the immediate formation of the Roberts Commission, overseen by Supreme Court Justice Owen Roberts, and assigned the responsibility of investigating the facts known to commanders at Pearl Harbor prior to the attack. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy, as Senator Arlen Specter once put it, was the single most investigated event in world history, with the possible exception of the crucifixion of Christ. The assassination of President Kennedy resulted in the formation of the Warren Commission, overseen by Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, and of course concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in the assassination of John Kennedy. And in more recent memory, the 9-11 Commission was created after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, and concluded that the FBI and the CIA, quote, failed to connect the dots regarding evidence of a possible terrorist attack. As you'll hear Professor Cole explain, it is not especially surprising that all of these events precipitated an immediate governmental response in the form of a national investigative commission. What is surprising, and what we should analyze closely at a time like this, is the manner in which the investigations were conducted and the continuing legacy that they have engendered. Beyond investigative commissions, Congress also has a role to play in the area of government expenditures, particularly right now, with the recent passing of the $2 trillion stimulus package. As you'll hear from Professor Cole, any oversight committee tasked with scrutinizing the government's COVID-19 spending would be wise to follow in the footsteps of the Truman Committee, which was chaired by then-Senator Harry Truman and was responsible for correcting problems in U.S. war production spending regarding waste and inefficiency. To this day, the Truman Committee is a model for overseeing government spending during a crisis. 
Professor Cole is a nationally recognized expert on these topics. And as you'll hear him explain in this episode, he thinks that the committees responsible for ultimately overseeing and investigating the COVID-19 pandemic will be the most significant committees in American history. One can only hope that the public servants tasked with those responsibilities will look to history first. Because as Winston Churchill once said, in history lies all the secrets of statecraft. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Professor Lance Cole. All right, I'm here with Professor Lance Cole. Professor Cole, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to join you, and I want to commend you for what you're doing with these podcasts. I think they'd be a great public service any time, but especially now with the pandemic and everyone at home. It's a wonderful thing you're doing, so it's great to be able to join you. I appreciate that, and I think this topic in particular is one that people would find just fascinating given the circumstances we've inherited, and you know, it gave me a chance as well to reflect on what was my favorite class in law school, which is your congressional investigation seminar. So uh, I was having a little deja vu rereading your, your law review article. So it's a, it's a treat for me as well. That's kind of you to say. And also, uh, so I have to return the favor and say that uh, you're one of my best ever students and wrote one of the best ever papers in my seminar. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Got a nice little mutual admiration society here. Sure. Uh, well, before we jump into it, there's, um, I think, some really uh, riveting conversation we can have today. But could you just tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you've done in this space over your career? Yeah, thank you. I am a law professor at Dickinson Law at Penn State University in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And my area of particular interest is governmental investigations. And that includes things like grand jury investigations, securities and exchange commission investigations in the corporate world. And I practiced law for the Washington office of a large New York law firm and did a lot of that kind of work, white collar crime and securities law investigations. But my greatest interest is congressional investigations. And that stems from the fact that uh, after I practiced law, I worked for two years as a special counsel in the Senate uh, during the Senate Whitewater Committee investigation in the Clinton administration. And that was a very, very exciting and informative experience for me. And after that, I began teaching at Dickinson Law. And while I was teaching at Dickinson Law in 2003 and 2004, I worked as a legal advisor on the staff of the 9-11 Commission, which obviously was another incredible experience that I was fortunate enough to have. And both of those experiences have given me uh, some insight and some familiarity with congressional investigations and special national investigative commission investigations. And as you know, I've since written and uh, talk about those topics, and I think they're vitally important in our democracy. So I'm happy to have the opportunity to uh, talk about the coronavirus pandemic from that perspective with you today. Yeah, and I know the 9-11 Commission is one that we'll touch on in a bit, but um, before we discuss some historical parallels, uh, the idea of a special committee is one that dates back to George Washington when he sent three men to Western Pennsylvania to investigate the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, and so could you just tell us a little bit about the basic difference between an investigative committee and a policy-oriented committee? Yes. Uh, you know, Congress has various means and uh, various responsibilities that it has to exercise. And 
what uh, Congress has done and what the Supreme Court has approved in the past is that Congress has two sources of investigative power. One is that Congress has the responsibility and the obligation to legislate uh, as needed in the national interest. And the Supreme Court has recognized that legislation to be effective requires investigation. And even though the Constitution doesn't specifically refer to a congressional investigative power, the Supreme Court has recognized that it's uh, implicit and inherent in the Constitution that Congress should be able to investigate in order to inform its legislative process. The second area where Congress has uh, investigative power that the court, the Supreme Court and other courts have recognized is in its oversight power that uh, Congress appropriates uh, funds and spends them typically through executive branch uh, action and funds the federal government uh, agencies and departments. And so Congress, again, has both uh, the power and the responsibility to investigate how congressionally appropriated taxpayer funds are being spent and whether they're being spent in accord with the laws that Congress has passed in the Constitution. And so both of those functions, the investigative function in connection with legislation and the investigative function in connection with oversight, is typically exercised by congressional committees. And there, in each House of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, there are standing committees that uh, have ongoing jurisdiction to investigate either from an investigative uh, legislation perspective or oversight perspective. And then from time to time, you'll have uh, exceptional or extraordinary circumstances where Congress may create special investigative committees. And for example, when I worked on the Whitewater investigation, that was a special Senate committee that was formed to investigate uh, Whitewater and President and Mrs. Clinton's involvement in the Whitewater investment. And similarly, Congress has done uh, created special investigative committees uh, in other instances. Uh, so that's not unusual. What's a little bit more unusual is to have a joint House-Senate special investigative committee. That's something that's reserved for truly extraordinary circumstances, and we had one of those after the 9-11 attacks. There was a 9-11 joint congressional inquiry where a special committee was formed uh, with members of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and they conducted an investigation. And similarly, something uh, a joint committee was formed for Iran-Contra to investigate the Iran-Contra matter. That, though, still has to be distinguished from yet a third uh, type of investigation, which is a special investigative commission that technically is not a part of Congress and may be created in one of two ways. It could be created by an executive order by a president. That's what happened uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack when President Roosevelt created what later became known as the Roberts Commission because it was chaired by Justice Owen Roberts uh, and investigated the Pearl Harbor attacks. Similarly, after President Kennedy's assassination, uh, President Johnson formed a commission known as the Warren Commission because it was chaired by Chief Justice Earl Warren that investigated the uh, Kennedy assassination. And then finally, of course, the 9-11 Commission was created. Uh, it was different, though, because it was created not by executive order, but by legislation in Congress that then was later signed into law by President Bush. So uh, big picture that gives you three possible avenues for uh, federal congressionally uh, connected investigation. One is the regular committee process. The other is a special committee, which could include a joint House-Senate committee. 
and the third then would be a special investigative commission that's formed uh, for a particular purpose, typically in connection with some national crisis or other very important uh, matter. And that's probably as much as anyone wants to hear about that topic. <laughs> so I'll stop there. Well, the, um, the, that last category you mentioned where there's a special commission, I think, is probably the one that draws the strongest parallel to today because obviously the Pearl, Pearl Harbor attack was the worst military defeat in our history. John Kennedy was the only president assassinated in, in the last century. And then to use the line that you borrowed from Arlen Specter in your Law Review article, uh, it was the, also the single most investigated event in world history with the possible exception of the crucifixion of Christ. Um, and then you have 9-11. And so those are three monumental uh, events that warranted, I think, um, a commission just like a global pandemic might right now. But before we, t we discuss those in more detail, um, you mentioned that the spending that has been uh, given to um, the Treasury Department, a $2 billion allocation in the stimulus bill, which just for some historical context is nearly three times the amount of money that was in the Great Recession stimulus bill passed by the Obama uh, Congress. Um, and that is an, ex an exorbitant amount of money. And uh, I'm sure there's a parallel here to a committee that we can look to for, um, for guidance. What would that be? I think probably the best parallel because of the uh, sheer amount of money that's being spent and necessarily and appropriately so in response to the coronavirus. You mentioned uh, the $2 trillion, $2.2 trillion legislation that Congress recently passed, the CARES Act. Uh, your uh, listeners may uh, or may not know that that's about half of the annual federal budget. It's an incredible amount of money. And I've also read estimates about the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars ranging from $6 trillion to $10 trillion, depending on how much of the long-term cost for things such as uh, medical care for veterans and veterans benefits that you take into account in uh, estimating the cost of those wars. And if you consider that the $2 trillion is only uh, probably the beginning of what will need to be spent uh, on a response to the coronavirus pandemic. You're talking about an amount of money that uh, will eventually equal or perhaps exceed uh, what typically is spent on a war. And if you look at uh, the uh, probably uh, the, all wars are very important, but uh, World War II, uh, probably stands uh, alone in terms of its uh, importance. And during World War II, there was some very significant congressional oversight of the war effort that through a committee, a special committee that was created by a unanimous resolution in the Senate and chaired by then-Senator Harry Truman, who at the time was not a well-known, particularly well-known uh, senator. He was just a junior senator from Missouri. And his work on that committee actually then led to his increased public prominence. And uh, eventually he was selected as President Roosevelt's uh, last vice president and then became president. So that may be a good parallel that we could start in discussing congressional oversight of the coronavirus spending. Absolutely. And, you know, President, well, later President Truman, um, Senator Truman at the time, uh, didn't even endorse FDR as one of the. Democrats, who was not at the time a New Deal Democrat, and ended up heading this committee, which was formed nine months before Pearl Harbor, so March of 1941. And 
its mandate was essentially to correct problems in U.S. war production with waste, inefficiency, and war profiteering. And in fact, I believe one of their first projects was to look at Fort Indian Town Gap here in Pennsylvania, um, where they discovered a severe budget flaw in military housing and uh, assigned the Army Corps of Engineers to take over. And I believe that saved upwards of $200 million. But the Truman Committee is often held as um, the paradigmatic example of how a committee like this should run. Uh, why is that? Why, why did that committee operate so effectively in such a difficult time? Well, from my research, I think then-Senator, later President Truman, did an extraordinary job. Actually, before the committee was formed, and you gave a very good uh, history there, before the committee was formed, uh, I've read that President, uh, I'm sorry, Senator Truman drove about 10,000 miles around the country after hearing reports of waste and fraud in military spending. And he, uh, during a congressional recess, drove all around the country visiting bases and just dropping in unannounced and speaking with people. Mm. And he then took that information back to Congress. And here's where I think this uh, comparison is really important. And you touched upon this earlier that uh, while President Roosevelt uh, probably wasn't uh, too uh, enthusiastic about uh, having the uh, war effort investigated, and perhaps not by Senator Truman, who wasn't one of his supporters in Congress, uh, the fact is that uh, they were both members of the same party. And so we could draw an analogy to the Senate today, which of course is uh, controlled by Republicans, and we have a Republican president with President Trump. And despite the fact that you had congressional oversight of a president during a time of war, and President Trump has drawn comparisons between the coronavirus and, and wartime uh, challenges the country faced, what the uh, Truman investigation shows is that you can have effective con investigation and oversight conducted by uh, a member of a president's own party, and that it doesn't necessarily interfere with the separation of powers between the legislative branch and the executive branch, and that it can be constructive, and that it doesn't have to be partisan, uh, because uh, one of the reasons that uh, Senator Truman's committee was praised was that it was very businesslike and matter-of-fact about uh, the way it went about its investigations in trying not to score political points, but to uh, serve the public good by ensuring that uh, public funds were spent wisely and appropriately. And I think that's a, a model that we could look at today. And it saved, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere in the range of 10 to $15 billion in military spending, didn't it? Yes. And ultimately, it was, I think, applauded. The work of that committee was applauded by uh, the various uh, undersecretaries of defense and uh, members of the Roosevelt administration whose, and the agencies whose activities were subject to oversight as being uh, a positive contributor to the war effort. Mm. And Tom, I'm, I'm sure you know this because I know you're a student of history, that uh, there's another uh, even uh, farther back in time example of uh, congressional oversight during wartime that is not as favorably regarded. And that was the committee in Congress that uh, during the Civil War with President uh, Lincoln, there was a committee on the conduct of the war that uh, caused President Lincoln a lot of problems and essentially interfered to some degree with his ability to conduct the Civil War. 
And the the famous quote from that is General Robert E. Lee said that uh, that committee was worth two or three divisions of Confederate mm. soldiers to him. And I've read that President Truman, or then Senator Truman, studied that committee and wanted to avoid making that kind of mistake. And so he was able to have objective and fair nonpartisan oversight without interfering with President Roosevelt's conduct of the war. That's fascinating. I did not, I knew that that uh, committee was a thorn in President Lincoln's side, but I didn't know that General Lee viewed it as a, a benefit. Um, and it just shows the value of studying history in this context. And President Roosevelt ended up welcoming the committee by the end of it, right? Yes, that's true, as, as did members of his administration, many of which had opposed it when it began its work. And so the Truman Committee gives us a good model for oversight of spending, which as this pandemic plays out in real time, is going to be uh, increasingly more important to see where, where the money goes. But there's also the type of commission that you mentioned in the beginning about having a more uh, retrospective look at specific conduct. And in fact, Adam Schiff just announced on Friday um, legislation to review the U.S. response to the novel coronavirus. Um, the Roberts Commission is probably a good place to start, which, as you said, was overseen by Supreme Court Justice Owen Roberts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack, there was great concern in the country about uh, how that attack had happened and why the uh, it uh, had not been detected, and the loss of life and the loss of military resources obviously was uh, tremendous. People were very concerned. And uh, President Roosevelt probably uh, concerned that uh, he have more control than if Congress investigated, because there's always tension and friction between the branches of government, even when they're controlled by the same party. And so he appointed a special commission that was chaired by Justice Roberts. And again, this may be an example where we can learn from prior mistakes because that commission is generally not regarded as a success. Uh, it uh, made some mistakes in terms of the thoroughness of its investigation, the kind of record it created. It, it interviewed people uh, without making any record of formal written record of the interviews and uh, acted very quickly and came to conclusions um, in some instances without reviewing all the underlying documentation and intelligence information that it might have used. And so I know that uh, when the 9-11 commissioners were beginning their work, they looked at the uh, experience of the Roberts Commission, and they wanted to do better in terms of the uh, the thoroughness and the uh, effectiveness of their investigation and also the public perception of the investigation. And another comparison that I mentioned earlier, of course, is the Warren Commission and investigating President Kennedy's assassination. And that's really a, a fascinating, we have limited time, but, uh, and I'll be brief, but it's a fascinating uh, case study itself because the conclusion of the Warren Commission that Oswald acted alone in assassinating President Kennedy is actually not accepted. I think the polls show that a majority of Americans even today don't uh, believe that Oswald acted alone. And yet, uh, no uh, findings of the Warren Commission have ever been contradicted, although many people have spent uh, incredible amounts of time recreating, reenacting, reinvestigating. Uh, and so 
it's either the most successful or the least successful example, and most successful in the sense that its conclusions have stood the test of time despite enormous uh, second-guessing and never been refuted, or perhaps least successful because despite that, uh, those conclusions haven't been accepted by the American people. And I also know that when the 9-11 commissioners were beginning their work, they were aware of that and wanted to avoid that result. And that's uh, one reason that they used the approach they did, which I know you're familiar with, of uh, making public a very user-friendly and uh, accessible lengthy, detailed report uh, through a publication that was made available uh, almost uh, immediately after the commission had concluded its work. It's a fascinating dichotomy because, like you said, the conclusions haven't been disproven, but yet they're not accepted. And one of the flaws that you identified in your analysis of the Warren Commission was how the staff of lawyers relied almost exclusively on the FBI for its investigative authority. And so there wasn't an independent investigative body under the Warren Commission. Why did that make a difference in the way the public ended up viewing the conclusion that it ultimately came to? I think the problem that the Warren Commission experienced was that uh, there was always suspicion that uh, the FBI had its own agenda and at that time, of course, was completely under the control of J. Edgar Hoover. And to the extent there may have been any faults or failings by the FBI, uh, in terms of, they, they were aware of Oswald's history, of course, as a defector to the Soviet Union and having returned to the United States, and they were aware that he was in the Dallas area, and uh, he had been in contact with the FBI there. And so there were questions about the role of the FBI, and I think a small, what, uh, of course, nothing is a small thing when uh, anyone dies, and particularly when there's an assassination of a president, but uh the fact that there was reason to question the objectivity of the FBI really was a chink in the armor of the investigation that made it easy then for people later to try to discredit its work. And uh, it's unfortunate, but that's just the reality that uh, as it played out. And another thing that I find really interesting too, which I'm not so sure we'll ever see again, at least I can't imagine it happening right now, is that the Roberts Commission and the Warren Commission were both overseen by of course, a sitting Supreme Court justice. Um, Owen Roberts is fascinating because he had a background investigating the Teapot Dome scandal, uh, which looked at really the first executive department bribery scheme. Um, and the Warren Commission, there's the famous story where uh, Justice Warren refused basically every request to be the uh, administrator of that commission until President Johnson called him into his office and, and asked him if the commander-in-chief asked you to serve your country during wartime, would you ever say no? And that was the icing on the cake. Um, but it seems to me that there is kind of a, um, a baked-in conflict of interest there with someone from the judiciary overseeing a commission that's investigating two other branches of government. Um, why during those time periods were uh, sitting members of the Supreme Court looked at as um, you know, credible figures in that department. And what has changed, do you think, over the past several decades as to why we don't really see that anymore? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think in both instances, you had presidents who wanted to give as much legitimacy as they could to a commission that they were creating by executive order and by selecting, particularly in the case of Chief Justice uh, Warren, a well-known 
established figure who, uh, by virtue of his position as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, had built in substantial credibility. And so that would carry over to the commission that was created. And uh, I would imagine that the president's hope that uh, having Chief Justice or a justice of the Supreme Court would uh, strengthen the commission's investigative uh, credentials. And since then, I think there's been a shift in thinking that it probably is not appropriate for justices of the Supreme Court to lend their office and their credibility and their personal time to uh, an undertaking of that nature. And as so far as I'm aware, there was never any consideration, and certainly the legislation that uh, that created the 9-11 Commission did not contemplate any involvement by Supreme Court justices in the investigation. So I think that's something that's an idea that is no longer considered uh, to be wise in the uh, we, we probably, I think you're correct, we're probably unlikely ever to see that again. Hmm. And so it brings us to the 9-11 Commission, which, as you noted earlier, began with the uh, idea that public sentiment is everything. And so they were trying to avoid a Warren Commission scenario where the findings weren't uh, accepted by the public. Um, but the interesting point that you note about the 9-11 Commission is that unlike the Roberts Commission, uh, and unlike the Warren Commission, the 9-11 Commission didn't uh, form right after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Um, why was that the case? Why was this timing different than uh, commissions like this in the past? Yeah, the history here uh, is important, and I think we can also take some lessons from it, because immediately after the terrorist attacks, the first effort to investigate was through Congress itself, through the special joint committee of Congress uh, with members from both the House of Representatives and the Senate that I mentioned earlier. And that committee, in fact, conducted uh, lengthy, they, could, they held hearings, they collected documents, uh, they uh, interviewed witnesses, and they conducted a substantial investigation. But ultimately, they weren't able to get all of the information that they were seeking from uh, the Bush administration and some of their work, there was the famous uh, uh, 38 pages of their report that was classified and, and not made public that uh, captured a lot of public attention. So there was a perception at least that the congressional investigation in that instance had not uh, been complete and thorough enough. And you had a very substantial, understandably, activity from the families of victims of 9-11 who then uh, found allies in Congress with Senator McCain and Senator Lieberman, who sponsored the 9-11 Commission legislation. So it really was a, uh, the creation of the 9-11 Commission was the result of a, uh, failed is too strong a word, I think, but uh, uns unsatisfactory and uh, partially at least unsuccessful effort by the regular congressional uh, system of investigation and a need uh, perceived by Congress to create a special bipartisan investigative commission that had subpoena power, uh, although, uh, as it turned out, the commission only used their subpoena power in a limit, to a limited degree, but they had the power to uh, subpoena documents and witnesses, and uh, they were formed for that purpose by Congress. And I think uh, the record shows that uh, the Bush administration was reluctant, but 
the political realities were such that uh, President Bush signed the legislation into law. And so this one, it seems, unlike the Warren Commission and the Roberts Commission, was um, clearly a child of the legislature. Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, there's uh, an important point there that is uh, a bit technical but worth noting, I think. When Congress created the 9-11 Commission, and, and it did differ from either the Roberts Commission, there, and there are many governmental commissions of all kinds, but uh, the two we've been talking about, the Roberts Commission and the Warren Commission, uh, the 9-11 Commission differed because it was created by the legislature and not by the executive branch through executive order. But more important, perhaps, or equally important, the 9-11 Commission legislation placed it in the ex in the legislative branch. So it was a special commission in the legislative branch of government. That later created some issues and difficulties when the 9-11 Commission was seeking sensitive executive branch materials like the uh, presidential daily briefings that received a lot of publicity at the time because uh, for the 9-11 Commission to get access to that information, at least as a technical legal matter, the executive branch had to turn over confidential, the, the most confidential, uh, some of the most confidential executive branch documents and materials to the legislative branch. So it had a built-in separation of powers problem that neither the Warren Commission nor the Roberts Commission had, and that had to be worked through, and that was one of the things that created challenges for the 9-11 Commission investigation. And it sounds like, again, with the 9-11 Commission, the uh, timeline that was mandated uh, under its creation, almost like the um, the Roberts Commission in a way, was was tight. Uh, what did that? What does a a forced timeline um, mean for an investigative body like this? And is there ever really a way to impose a hard deadline, or should it be more of a fluid kind of let's see where this goes types of approach? Yes, that's uh, one of the biggest issues because ideally you you begin an investigation, you don't know all the facts or where the facts will lead you. And so it's arbitrary at best to set a time, a time deadline at the outset. On the other hand, uh, when these uh, crises occur, people are looking for answers and they're looking for results and they don't want to wait forever. So uh, a deadline is a way to facilitate that. And what typically happens and what happened with the 9-11 Commission was that deadlines are extended, additional funding is granted. And that, that was true, for example, of uh, slightly different context, but we've already talked about it with the Truman Committee, where Congress initially funded it very modestly, and then it continued over several years, and the funding increased. And so, to some degree, the work, the investigative work, and the findings will dictate the timing, but to another degree, the timing is dictated by external factors, such as funding and deadlines, and uh, compromises have to be reached. But uh, those are just the inevitable issues that one faces when you're starting an investigation of that nature. And so if we're looking ahead now and bringing this back to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, we've mentioned uh, timing, we've mentioned the scope of a mandate, you mentioned subpoena power, um, you know, conflicts of interest. If you were kind of forming a committee here from scratch, what, what are some kind of top priorities that you would, uh, if you were counseling a, a sitting member of Congress right now, that you would say, here are some ways where we can establish legitimacy and conduct an investigation that warrants uh, or yields public support? I think there are probably at least two things, two big picture things that should be considered at this time. 
one, as we discussed before, the amount of money that's being spent here, and there are guidelines in the in the legislation as to how the money should be spent, and uh, what to, what should be done with it. Those are things that require oversight, and of course, there's already controversy about uh, the inspector general that was uh, created by the legislation and uh, has since been a subject of political controversy, but uh, ultimately. It's Congress that appropriated the funds and Congress that should look at uh, ensuring that the funds are spent in the way that Congress intended. And so I think there needs to be oversight of the kind that we previously discussed, either through the regular committee process or I think this would certainly rise to the level if you look at the amount of spending and the importance of uh, its effectiveness to our whole country, where a special investigative committee would be appropriate. Now, I think the political realities are such that that's unlikely in the Senate, uh, and I think it's unlikely that the Senate and House would reach any kind of uh, political agreement to form a, a special joint inquiry like we saw after 9-11. Uh, so I think that that's politically not likely. Is that lack of political cooperation that you mentioned, is that rare? Uh, it's not rare, but unfortunately, it, it has become increasingly predominant, at least uh, in the, the current political climate in Washington. And President Trump has vigorously resisted congressional oversight of the kind that prior to his administration was thought to be routine uh, by presidents of both parties and uh, the 9-11 Commission, uh, the Bush administration, even during the joint inquiry that preceded the 9-11 Commission, the uh, Bush administration produced large amounts of information to uh, the Congress, and the only question was uh, particular information that were where legal issues were raised. And I recall very well during the Whitewater investigation, all of President Clinton's close aides in the White House uh, testified before the, um, the uh, Senate Whitewater Committee and no one asserted uh, during that investigation executive privilege. There were some executive privileges later during the Monica Lewinsky investigation that was conducted by independent counsel Kenneth Starr. But when the Whitewater Committee was conducting its investigation, there was a, a consensus that uh, Congress was certainly entitled to a certain amount of information, reasonable amounts of information from uh, the executive branch. I'm not sure uh, in the present political environment that that consensus still remains. And uh, so I think going back to your question, the biggest challenge will be if, if the House of Representatives wants to conduct oversight, how does it do it in a way that's seen as nonpartisan and objective as opposed to an, what will be viewed by President Trump and his supporters as an attack on the administration? So that's that would be step one. And then I think step two is later when we come out on the other side of this pandemic, as, as we will, uh, there may be the need to have some kind of special investigative commission to look back and see uh, what lessons that we can learn, again, in a constructive and nonpartisan way to try to uh, better prepare for things like this in the future. And so one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is uh, whether to make uh, investigations like this public. Um, the commissions that we've talked about so far kind of had varying degrees of publicity. Uh, obviously, there's the famous example of Watergate. We have we still to this day play clips of John Dean, and uh, we even see you know, Oliver North during Iran-Contra. Um, 
And we saw it a little bit during the impeachment inquiry in January, what happens when we have a public hearing on matters like this. Um, what role do you see uh, the public playing in a, an investigation like we're looking at now for the COVID-19 pandemic? That's an excellent question. And I think as bad as this pandemic is, and it's a, a terrible set of circumstances, there may be a small silver lining on the cloud in this area, because unlike the investigations you mentioned, where you have potentially at least uh, very sensitive national security information or executive privilege uh, issues that would arise. Here, I don't think you have the same problem with those kind of issues. It's more uh, akin to what we saw with uh, the Truman Commission. In fact, probably even easier than that, because obviously when you're conducting uh, war, there are many things that have to be kept secret and confidential and can't be made public. But here we're talking about public health and spending taxpayer money to uh, address public health issues and to address the economic uh, problems that are arising out of this public health crisis that we're in. And so from my perspective, at least, I don't see the same kind of uh, issues of confidentiality in this context that you have in the other context that you mentioned. And public hearings to to educate the public, to build uh, support for government actions, and basically just to give everyone confidence in uh, government and uh, the things that government's doing and to determine whether there's a need to do more or do things differently. And I think uh, public hearings here would be appropriate and likely very helpful. I think so too. And that's really one of the challenges of the modern era is how we view certain circumstances differently based on our political ideology. My dad and I talk often about how during Watergate, the entire country got its news at six o'clock on a weeknight from Walter Cronkite and more or less was operating on the same basis of common fact. Whereas today, you know, that's not necessarily the case. And so have you given any thought, and this is maybe an unfair question because if anybody knew the answer to this, they <laughs> would might be in the White House right now, but um, have you given any thought to how you would advise a member of Congress right now on trying to overcome what seem like at times insurmountable uh, differences of opinion and different perceptions of fact? That's a, it's a very hard question and it's almost impossible, particularly members of Congress are political animals and they have uh, political agendas and they're identified with their political affiliation and their political agenda. So it's, it's very difficult for them to appear to be nonpartisan. And that will be the, the secret to this uh, in terms of the role of Congress as to whether or not members of Congress can frame the issues and tailor their responses in ways that will be perceived by the public or at least a majority of the public as not being politically motivated or driven by political concerns, but rather driven by, you know, patriotic uh, nonpartisan uh, efforts to serve the common good. And that's much easier said than done, particularly in the times that we live in today. No, but it's perfectly said. And uh, just kind of as a final question for you, um, obviously each of the instances we've discussed have been, uh, where is an instance where the country faced a danger of the first magnitude, whether that was a world war or a terrorist attack or an assassination of a sitting president. Um, this is of a different variety, but no less of a threat. Um, where, do you, where would you say our current dynamic uh, compares 
to investigations of the past. Sadly, I think that we're at the top of the chart here. And uh, before we started speaking this afternoon, I was looking at the latest uh, reported uh, deaths in this country from coronavirus. And uh, just under 3,000 people died in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, over 2,900 people died. And we are just about to cross the 20, and probably in reality have already crossed the 29,000 death threshold in the country and the number's still going up. So we're already at 10 times and and looking to exceed that, the number of uh, lives that we lost in the 9-11 attacks. So, uh, and I, I also read somewhere, I don't have the numbers at hand, but I recall reading that the number of deaths from coronavirus already exceed the deaths in both the Korean War and the Vietnam War combined. So I think that we are dealing with a, a crisis of the highest magnitude here. And uh, everyone in Congress and uh, in government and in society should be thinking about what what can we do on every front to respond to this terrible situation? Absolutely. And like war, this is indefinite, at least for now. And so the role of oversight in a time like this is all the more important where it'll be an ongoing oversight as opposed to one that's set in stone. Um, and like you said earlier, the sheer amount of money, $2 trillion, is uh, unprecedented. Um, and so your insights, Professor, are uh, deeply appreciated and extremely timely right now. And, um, you know, I think the fact that you regard this as possibly the most significant investigation in American history is uh, all we need to know. So um, it's great to reconnect with you. And I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me this Thank afternoon. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure. And I think uh, if there's ever been a time in our recent history, certainly where leadership is needed at the national level, this is it. And I think uh, it, people who rise above partisanship and show real leadership uh, will be, I hope, uh, rewarded in this situation because that's what's needed here. Perfectly said. Thanks, Professor.